0: This episode is about stress and the brain. From 2002 to 2012, I created and ran the Urban Warfare Center. It was a force-on-force facility designed to teach military, law enforcement, and civilians how to overcome the negative effects of stress on the body. When we are under duress, as stress increases, our performance decreases. This is happening because the brain... While it's equipped to deal with stress and to filter it and to become cognitive and responsive with appropriate action, sometimes we get stuck in what's called the middle brain, the amygdala, which is, I call it the bean because it's about the size of a bean. Sight, sound, taste, touch, smell stimulates us. It works as a pathway through the middle brain, the amygdala, the bean, trying to get to the frontal cortex, the place where reason exists. If we can get there when we receive a, a stress response through a traumatic event, we are able to more rationally and more appropriately deal with the response of fight, flight, or freeze. We can make a decision to either fight, to either freeze, or to either run based upon experiences that we've had which are located and stored in the middle brain, the amygdala, or as I call it again, the bean. The middle brain stores all of the index card files. I like to think of it like a Roldex that we flip through and it looks for an experience that's like the one that's coming through the brainstem that we're seeing visually, that we're hearing, we're smelling, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell being stimulated. As it flips through this card file and it finds an experience that's similar, it proceeds to the cortex, the frontal cortex, and it says, this is how you should rationally respond to this. Let's say it's a gunfight. You smell gunpowder. You hear an explosion. The response to that might be, if you've been in a gunfight before, is to draw your weapon, take cover, assess the threat, and to engage if needed. It might be, if you haven't had that experience, to quickly run away from the noise, from the danger. You know, we hear stories uh, really crystallized at 9-11 of all those who ran towards the danger. And many people, most people ran away from it. They literally ran away from danger because they did not have the middle brain index card file of experiences that told them to run towards the danger to help. They had the flee response. Many people had the freeze response. And it took 911 professionals and other people who had the wherewithal to get them to move out of danger and avoid dying. I actually had a good friend who was at 9-11. He was very proactive in helping people and saw many people perish in front of him with desks and furniture flying out of the building and literally killing them. Um, but he was able to get functional and help other people and save some lives by getting them to move from the freeze response. So the brain is a really cool uh, topic, and and I'm not a you know a doctor of neurosciences, but in running the Urban Warfare Center, one of the things we did in our facility is we created what's called the Combat Stress Program. Now, this program was created out of a need after 9-11 and the War on Terror began. Uh, it was created in 2002 for me to test equipment, really. It wasn't designed to actually train soldiers or federal agents or police. But because I developed a shoot house with less-than-lethal technology like paintball rounds or airsoft or simulations or rubber balls that shot 200 miles per hour, fully automatic... 30 rounds per second, we were able to induce stress in that environment and create an education process where we could walk them through the negative effects of what's going on to them in a controlled, chaotic, feeling like it's a realistic environment, yet completely safe, and back them out of the stress-crushing responses into an educational experience and an awareness which broke down physiology and what's happening to the body. So it started with an army unit that came in and said, "Hey, would you guys uh, be willing to train us? We're going to Iraq." And at the time in 2002, there really wasn't anything uh, spun up for training. It took several years for the United States to get tooled up to train soldiers to prepare for the difficulties of that war. They said, "Well, we don't have anything, and we're going over to Iraq, and 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 can you, you know, can we, can you at least help us?" And so I said, "Sure, come on back in." So I put together a couple of guys in my building and uh, instructors. They became instructors in the Urban Warfare Center. One was a very good veteran, a friend of mine. And I thought that I didn't have anything to offer, but in reality I did because my experience in going through a hostage rescue program in England with the Brits had taught me a significant amount of fine motor skill reduction, of audio and acuity reduction, or enhancement, depending on good training, when stress inoculation takes place, when trauma hits the brain, when the brainstem is stimulated with sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, to the degree that the amygdala or the middle brain is furiously flipping through the index card file and looking for a reason or a, a method to deal with what is happening, the onslaught of controlled and at times uncontrolled chaos. We are desperately trying to get to that frontal cortex so I put the soldiers inside an environment where there was smoke and fog. I uh, used a fog machine, lasers. I had green and red lights, which are not really characteristic to anywhere on planet Earth unless it's Christmas. And low light conditions. And I put a couple bad guys in there. I'd use a ratio of one to 10 normally. If there's 10 bad guys, we'd have one bad guy if there's, or two. If there's uh, 20, we'd have two or three. And we gave them a mission. We said, your job is to go grab a high-value target up on the second floor of the Green Bay. There was two big warehouses that were converted to look like a Middle Eastern or an urban setting. While they were on this mission, we would tell them you're not allowed to die. We would, tell our, we would also tell them that our opposing force, our OPFOR, our instructors that were fighting against them to prevent them to accomplish the mission, would die if you hit them. They would give you a gruesome death to reward you for engaging them and getting your brain to function in a proactive way to save your life and the lives of your mates. After this first scenario, they came back out of the facility. It lasted probably 45 minutes. And they were stress inoculated. And we hadn't really coined that phrase or understood that phrase much other than we understood the sciences intuitively as veterans. We didn't understand how it all broke down. But I did converse with them and I said, Hey guys, do you know what's happening to you right now? Because you look like deer in headlights. And they're like, No, man, we just got our asses kicked. And I said, Well, what's happening to you is the negative effects of stress are causing you paralysis. You're stopping in doorways and windows where you get shot a lot. You're not moving through areas and controlling your muzzle with nose to muzzle. You're not going too into danger. There's so many things that we need to learn. We're paying for real estate multiple times when you take a place, you're not owning the angles. And so this is a lot of tactics get blended in with this, but in reality, our program wasn't about tactics. We didn't care what your tactics were. You bring your tactics, we will test them under fire and validate that they work and validate your mental toughness, your resilience in order to accomplish your mission based on your SOPs, standard operating procedures or tactics. As this happened and we debriefed them, we would enter them into some particle skills. We would give them some fundamental Stacking, how to make entries, how do you clear rooms, fundamentals. And again, if the tactics were different, we would modify to meet their SOPs, but test them under fire. Most of the time, they would adopt the stuff we had to share with them because it had uh, had come from a combat-proven environment uh, and instruction. Um, And it evolved over the decade we did this. Uh, Our tactics really never changed a ton, but there were some modifications to the methods and principles we used to teach. As the soldiers were given these particle skills, we call them, basic uh, manipulation of their firearm and nose and muzzle and movement techniques and how to take cover and not expose your muzzle too far out of the window or the door so you could pull it back and recess shoot, Uh, things like that, where you can show a little portion of your body where the muzzle is and your eye and not your whole body, kind of like a cat hiding behind a wall to attack the ball of string. Things like this, they would become more confident, and then we would give them another scenario. The scenario would last a shorter amount of time, and it would be a simpler scenario. And throughout the day, we would bring them back out. We would peel the onion and do a debrief each time. In the debriefing, we would ask them to reflect on their behavior, their responses to the stimulus that was taking place on the battlefield, the simulated battlefield, and how they responded to it. What did they do positively and what did they do negatively This is not to self-deprecate or to bash themselves or to break confidence. It is designed to self-reflect and so that you can apply tools and principles in order to become more effective and more capable in the battle space. As we repeated the process of scenario, stress inoculation, pull them out, debrief, self-evaluate, and repeat, by the end of the 8- or 10-hour day, the soldiers would have a final mission. And the final mission, our opposing force, would give them no quarter. They would violently unleash upon them. And every single time throughout the 10 years we did this, the soldiers, the SWAT teams, um, the federal agents would dominate the battle space. It became quite a phenomenon to me to see how the increase of controlled chaos in the debrief of stress inoculation and the dynamics of what it does to the body when it's understood and particle skills are introduced that relate to dominating the space you're in, the battle space, principle-based information, not necessarily tactics, how that would really increase retention and it would shorten the training cycle. And those were the two great benefits we got out of this program, to increase retention, to make a a memory on an index card in the amygdala, the little bean part of the brain, that was permanent. So when they got to Iraq or Afghanistan, anywhere downrange, they would be able to pull back and reflect on the experience they had when they smelled smoke, gunpowder, when they heard explosions, when they saw flashes of light, and when they heard the screams of pain. They became aware that, okay, I need to ground nose with muzzle. I need to take a strong position of cover. I need to limit my exposure to the battle space. And I need to be lethal in my presentation of my weapon and committed to engage. And as those and many other things would take place and unfold, they would dominate the space, cut off the angles of our bad guys to shoot, move, and communicate, and get a great sense of confidence that they could not only survive, but they could thrive and actually Dominate the experience. A couple things come out of this 10 years of running this facility that I think are worth repeating. There's a statement that was made by a Prussian general named Clausewitz. He said, No good plan survives first contact with the enemy. He kind of goes on to say that the battle space that you create, your plan needs to be fluid and built upon dynamic principles that are everlasting and do not fade when the explosions happen and and the intensity of the battle space increases, that the principles will last. Some of those principles that he would talk about would be the ability to dynamically adjust how you move your units on the battlefield based upon what's happening in the battle space and not being afraid to do that instead of being trapped and boxed and killed to be dynamic in your movement. The other thing we learned that every tactic that we use Every technique that we employ must be tested under fire, and I would expand that to say, if you're into self-defense, then whatever you use needs to be tested in your, in your extreme battle space. When we went to, uh, when I went to the Israeli bodyguard program, we were taught very aggressive physical techniques to win a physical confrontation. And we actually fought in a circle for long periods of time. Every other person in the circle would have a number. The instructor would call off a number, just like kind of fighting for your black belt uh, in Taekwondo, where everybody circles around you, they call off numbers, and you have to defend against them. This was more free-for-all, but we would use specific techniques to parry the weapon, block the weapon, and drill them to the ground or put them between the next guy who's assaulting at the same time. Uh, all these different principles and techniques we'd use would be tested under conflict, under an actual f- simulated fight. And that's the point. Uh, you know, whether you go left and you go right, you go high or you go low, if it's not tested under fire in a force-on-force force environment uh, or the real world, which has an expensive price tag because you don't have a reset button with your life, then the tactic has not been validated and probably needs to be. Some of the other principles, again, we would stress is 2 into danger, nose and muzzle. Simple communication is effective. Use ABC 123 language. Don't get elaborate. Use very simple one or two-syllable words. Mission clarity became an important lesson learned. When people understood their mission, they understood what their purpose was. Why am I a law enforcement officer? Why do I don the badge and gun every day? Why do I become a military member? Is it for college benefits? Is it to serve my country? Or is it because I believe in the ideology that America is a land of the free, preserved by the brave? Now that sounds idealistic, but you know what? It worked for me. And educational benefits and the fact that I could sort of kind of take care of my family because I had several kids was a net benefit. The other thing, and one of the last principles, lessons learned that I want to share with you today, and I'll talk more about this at a future podcast, is leave no one behind. Leave no one behind physically or emotionally. And that's a big deal. In our facility, in my urban warfare center, when we were running a scenario, I often would have their commander, their leader of their element taken from them during the chaos. We would grab them scream into their ear that they have now been abducted and put them in a place of hiding. As the unit would come out, we would ask them, have you done a head count? No, no, we haven't done a head count. Or yes, we did. We're missing somebody. And we would say, you're right. You are missing somebody. Next mission. You have 30 seconds to make entry. Rescue your down comrade, wherever he is. But well, we don't know where he's at. Exactly. You've got 15 seconds And so we would apply a significant amount of pressure and teach them in this dynamic way that we never leave anybody behind, that we count everybody into the mission, we count everybody out of the mission. And unless they have been counted, we don't leave. That has been a theme in the American military for a long time. And while it might not always be possible to recover everybody, it needs to be one of our principles, our moral fiber, our purpose as we go on missions. One of the missions that we have is to make sure we protect those that are around us and that they return home from the mission. A lot more to be said on that at a later date. So as I mentioned earlier, training cycles were reduced the amount of time needed to stimulate the middle brain and make a permanent memory because the middle brain controls permanent memories. It also is the emotional brain. Because the middle brain is the emotional brain, It also stimulates sometimes the fight, flight, or freeze response. Uh, Adrenaline is dumped into our body when we are under stress. Significant amounts of adrenaline. The digestive system is retracted, so the blood that is used for that is preserved and sent to the larger muscle groups, to the heart, to the brain, to places where we can actually fight or run. Visual acuity is reduced Audio exclusion takes place where we have reduced hearing. Our speech sometimes is limited. Sometimes we can't speak under significant amount of stress. When our heart rate goes above 200 beats per minute, for example, it becomes very difficult for some people to actually express themselves clearly. Again, one of the reasons we teach the principle-based ABC123 language, because stress is going to impair your ability to communicate. When fine motor skills, such as your fingers and toes, are reduced in their effectiveness, which is an effect of stress, and is response from the blood being sent to other parts of the body, the larger muscle groups, our training needs to be based on gross motor movements, large muscle movements. In self-defense, this is a big deal. When we use techniques, like I've been a practitioner of Hapkido, which is Korean Aikido for many years, it's a fantastic technique to do joint manipulation inside or outside the body or high and low techniques on somebody, which are principles. Um, and it's really fantastic, but it is fine motor skill oriented. So instead of that, maybe I choose to strike from the tip of the fingers and my elbow above the shoulders on this individual while I'm walking through them. That's a more of a gross motor movement, defensive technique, that's not nearly as fine motor skill oriented as hapkido or aikido may be. So these are considerations that need to be taken uh, as we look at the reduction of the body's performance and the, as the stress increases at a, at a very high rate. So one of the elements as we kind of wrap this segment up and, and we talk about, well, how do we train to stress if we don't have an urban warfare center? What do we do? Well, I go back to restate what I said just a minute ago. Make sure that everything you do is tested under fire. A simulated environment, again, whether that's ground fighting techniques, standing up techniques, or it's uh, force-on-force training where you're actually making entry into a building and you're doing uh, belly button-to-belly button combat in an urban setting, that needs to be done in an environment where there's humans that are behind you or in front of you thinking, moving, shooting, and communicating with technology that can mark you, hurt you, and stimulate you. Our rubber balls would shoot about, like I said, 200 miles per hour, and they would shoot around 30 rounds per second, and they would leave a welt the size of a 50 cent piece. There's no question that you had made a decision that cost you some blood. And those were reminders for the folks who had to the training to reflect on the things you did well and the things you did not do well, and to reduce the amount of rounds you took in the future. It was also used to stimulate the brain, to generate large adrenaline dumps, and to deplete their efficiency and eventually helped them increase their efficiency because they became more used to it. There was a Peloponnesian general leader named Thucydides, and he said this comment, and this used to actually be above the door in the urban warfare center. I still have the placard in my basement. It said, we should remember that one man is much the same as another and that he is best who is trained in the severest school. Even Thucydides understood that stress training and hard training is required to forge in fire warriors. If you're training for your handgun live fire training, I apply time pressure to my drills. I use single hand, off hand shooting, so support hand, dominant hand, reloading with one hand, reloading with the support hand, your weak hand, whatever you want to call it, all those techniques are practiced in a safe environment under, at times, some time pressure. The 10-10-10-10 drill, 10 rounds, 10-inch 10 target, 10 yards or 10 feet, depending on your capability, in 10 seconds applies a significant amount of pressure and will help you have to refine the critical skills of sight alignment, sight picture, and trigger control in a time frame. So as we said before, uh, increase in performance uh, can take place with certain people. Sometimes people actually do better under stress, but it's very rare. So, who are those people that do that? Well, our experience in 10 years was that veteran law enforcement officers, veteran military guys and gals who had seen conflict before, who had had the stress response introduced many times to the brain stem sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, who had felt the middle brain record experiences. Again and again, it had a large index card file to flip through. While they might not find the exact experience in their recall of memory, they would find one similar to it and apply the principles that they learned that helped them dominate or survive the engagement. They became the mentors. They became the leaders. And as I said earlier, sometimes we would kill them in the scenario to remove their capability for the younger troops or the less experienced troops to help them rise to the occasion and write permanent index cards into their brain. Sometimes we would leave the veterans in place so they could actually communicate. I have a visual in my mind right now, as I said that, of this young ROTC uh, cadet leader. I have a picture of this. He's got a helmet on, a face mask, a light on the top, which identifies what, what squad he's in, and he's in his ACUs, the Digital Army Camo, and he's covered in dirt and rounds And he's got his finger and arm and hand extended to the shoulder of somebody else. And I know behind that mask, he is screaming at the top of his lungs because the decibel levels, the noise levels were so high in the facility during the scenarios. And he was speaking clearly and concisely because his eyes are intense and they're locked on the guy. He did everything that's needed in the dynamic environment to help this other kid survive and receive communication that could either save his life or increase their ability to dominate the battle space. Physical contact took place. He touched him. He used eye contact very close to his face mask because visibility is reduced. He used clear language in order to communicate with this young man. Very, very strong, dynamic, and real-world example in a training environment of outstanding leadership, and what veterans look like when they get it. When people would finish our program, they would become a veteran of the Urban Warfare Center. And they might not have been a veteran of Iraq or Afghanistan or Africa or wherever they were going yet, but they were well-suited to enter the battle space and with the other skills they would uh, obtain from the military or their law enforcement agencies, well-suited to let the brain handle its function well. In sending the stimulus from the stem through the amygdala all the way to the frontal cortex so they can make good, rational, principle based decisions. I close with this short experience I had at a gun show in Salt Lake City on a Saturday. We were still running programs in the Urban Warfare Center because I ran them until 2012. And this kid came out of nowhere, tall, about six foot four good-looking, tall kid. And I say kid. He was in his mid-20s, maybe late 20s. And he said, uh, are you Mr. Burnell?" And I said, yes, sir, I am. He goes, you know, you, you gave my unit a combat stress program, which is the name that was coined when we <clears throat> formalized the program with our methodology and our tools and our facility." And he said, I want you to know, and he didn't crack a smile. He was as sober and as serious as anybody I've ever seen. I was a little nervous, actually. I thought I wanted to apologize to him because I knew he would probably went through one of my programs. I always apologize to people when I meet them uh, because it's really kind of brutal for a good reason. You have to hurt sometimes in order to show the love for them to obtain the skills they need to survive a place where these people have been stress inoculated for thousands of years and know how to channel that stress and focus their adrenaline to kill you. So, his words to me were this everybody that deployed came back but two. And I immediately thought, man alive. And he said, but those two were killed in an IED incident, improvised explosive device, a bomb, placed someplace and most likely hit their vehicle. Could have been while they were on foot patrol, but most of the time they hit vehicles. But everybody else came back and we got in several firefights. And he said, I want you to know that what we learned in that space saved a lot of lives. You know, I've heard from commanders over the years and many other people. I'm very grateful for the decade that we had to run this facility. You know, I I tried to run it at no cost to anybody who ever attended it other than civilians. And it was successful in that model for the most part. But we trained thousands of military, law enforcement, federal agents, and many, many civilians, in the adverse effects of stress and how we can channel it to make it work for us. The brain is a great superhero in our lives. It literally has the ability to save our lives if we train effectively and correctly so it can work its way through the stimulus of a traumatic event, whether it's a physical assault or actual combat and get us to the point where we can use the proper principle-based self-defense techniques, whether it's physical confrontation or gunplay, in order to survive and thrive and live another day. This is Jaeger, out.